When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Get ready for Legends of Sport with Andrew D. Bernstein. The Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame photographer has hit the podcasting scene. Each Tuesday starting February 27th, Andy and co-host Jonas Wadler will chat with some of the world's most prestigious athletes of all time. Enjoy stories from life behind the scenes with the most decorated sports photographer in the business. Make sure to subscribe to Legends of Sport with Andrew D. Bernstein. Beginning Tuesday, February 27th, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the brand new podcast one app welcome to real jam radio i am danny larue your host and so happy to have you with us for this episode as many of you would have expected ncaa tournament focused edition of the show with longtime friend of the podcast sam vicini of the athletic a lot to talk about with this tournament especially with the players being pretty spurred out and where i wanted to start is where what teams people should watch immediately so that would if you listen to the podcast and segments i would definitely start at the beginning that's why i do it that way and then we get into a lot of other topics including the clay thompson news actually broke during our recording and so we talked about that a little bit and a few other topics but plenty of ncaa tournament as well prospects to watch because that's the focus of this teams to watch his prediction for the final four in the national championship game and everything else so it's a lot of fun episode is brought to you by bet dsi if you use the mad gm madgm promo code you get bonus entries and you get a 200 percent member bonus on your first deposit which is pretty awesome and then our friends at true car you can check it out great place to buy new and used cars conversation runs just about an hour i think you'll really enjoy it thanks so much for coming on what's going on danny I, it's a it's a beautiful wednesday before the ncaa tournament man it is and we don't need to talk about the games that happened yesterday for my own personal <laughs> let's talk let's talk ucla danny no. i know you're gonna be so excited to talk about no. it no but in, <laughs> instead what i think and and you could say this relates to the bruins to a point because of aaron holiday what i thought would be a good place to start as this is more of an nba centric podcast is the players who are filled two boxes one is they're worth watching from an nba perspective and yeah. two might not be in the tournament very long because either they have a tough matchup or their team is good. So basically, hey, if you want to see X player, and I have a couple in mind, but I'm sure you'll have more, you better get on it Thursday, Friday, maybe Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, there are a few guys like that. I would say, for instance, one of them that comes to mind immediately for me is Demarcus Simmons from uh, Georgia State. They're going to be playing Cincinnati. That's a really good matchup to get to see one of the best like mid-major guards in the country. He averaged 21 points, six rebounds, five assists this year. Super power athlete. Like people around the Sun Belt call him the Russell Westbrook of the Sun Belt, which is you know hilarious and ridiculous to say, but like that's that's the kind of athlete he is on that level. And some people think he can play in the NBA. So like that, that's one guy to watch. I mean, on a, on a grander scale, I would say you should probably watch Michael Porter early. Uh, that team looked like garbage against Georgia in the SEC tournament. And Michael Porter is going to be playing. Jonte Porter is going to be playing, uh, in their eight nine game against Florida State. So I would watch him early and I, I would be interested to see how he attacks just the game in general, how he is able to kind of make an 
impact even when his shot isn't falling because that's something that he didn't do well in their first game. I'm trying to think who who else springs to mind. I mean, Colin Sexton's in an eight nine game. That well, is it, is it Trey Young? I mean, they're a seed underdog, right? Right. Uh, Trey Young is definitely uh, an underdog in this game. Uh, he is uh, a 10 seed going against a 7 seed in Rhode Island. That is an awesome matchup to watch because uh, Rhode Island has a pair of really, really, really good on-ball defenders in Jared Terrell and Stanford Robinson, neither of whom will probably play in the NBA. Terrell might be able to get a cup of coffee uh, just because he's so good defensively and has really improved as a jump shooter. But they're both going to get after Trey Young, and it's going to be interesting to see how he goes against legit length and athleticism. Yeah, Young was one that stood out to me and was something that we haven't talked about, which is not as much in the tournament, but we can still talk about whatever we want, is just the collapse of Oklahoma late in this season. I mean, Young was being hyped as not necessarily pushing himself in the number one conversation, but really getting himself in that mix. And while his stock has not fallen to where it was before this season, it certainly has fallen from that point. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I was someone who I think I even said on this podcast whenever Trey Young was happening early in the season. We need to see where this goes from here because he was always something of a streaky guy. Uh, he has had runs like this before, and he's also had runs like he had in February before where he hit like 19% from three. Uh, somewhere in the middle is what Trey Young is, and we can't really just go off of the good when we're evaluating him as a prospect. So uh, that's kind of what happened, I think, that Trey Young train came back down to earth and the rest of their team came back down to earth as a result. I mean, this is a team that does not have any other legitimate NBA prospects on it. That's just kind of where we're at at this point with Oklahoma. And the fact that he was able to drag them to the NCAA tournament is, in my opinion, pretty remarkable. I'm still someone who has Trey Young as a lottery pick. Like, I think he's probably got a decent shot to go in the top 10. But I think that there are very real worries about his impact on the game because he's someone who really needs to have the ball in his hands. And he's someone who I can see NBA players and NBA folks just getting sick of playing with because all of those guys are very, very talented. And Trey Young is also very talented, but they want the ball too. Uh, and Trey Young dominates the ball in a way that is pretty concerning. Another game that I'm really looking forward to, I don't think I'm going to get the exact matchup I want in terms of personnel, but Alabama-Virginia Tech, because Colin Sexton in the conversation with Trey Young for either the first or second point guard, I don't consider Luka Doncic a one because I don't think he's going to defend ones in the NBA, but those two guys having high-profile games and both of them could lose in their first game is going to be, be fascinating, and Sexton, unlike Trey Young turned early March into a time that he boosted his stock and had that big run through the early portion of the SEC tournament. Here's the thing with Colin Sexton. Anyone who has ever seen him play, yourself included, you could have predicted this like clockwork, right? That this guy was going to get up for March, that he's going to get up for uh, the time where his team needed him the most and just dominate the action. He's that kind of competitor. He's that kind of just high-level athlete who wants to attack the game in every single way possible it is insane you know what i mean like he is just so athletic and so gifted at getting to the basket that it's he's just one of the most impressive competitors i've ever seen and i doubt we're gonna see it in that form this is what i was alluding to before but last year at the hoop summit if you had told me that Nikhil alexander walker who was one of my favorite defensive players defensively the guy I compared him to just in terms of ceiling not not where i expect him to be or anything like that was danny green i would love to see Nikhil guard colin sexton for extended periods but considering vatek has other guards i doubt we're going to see it too much why do you why do you want to do that to Nikhil? Why do you want to hurt him so much? Stress test. It's a good, good way, good way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> at some point you're going to have to get thrown in the fire. And from what I've heard, I haven't been following Nikhil too closely this year. Is it, it sounds possible that he's going to come back for at least one more year? Is that is that right? I would suggest it if I was advising him that he return for a year. Next year's draft is already we can see going to be a little bit worse than this year's uh, first and foremost. And he's had some pretty significant issues throughout the course of the year, especially on the defensive end. Like they defend 
been worse when he is on the floor than when he's off the floor. Teams shoot better when he's off the floor, or teams shoot better when he is on the floor. They force fewer turnovers when he's on the floor. Teams have a higher offensive rebounding rate when he's on the floor. Uh, He's just a problematic defender right now, and it shows in the way that Buzz Williams, especially through the early portion of the season, it's gotten a little bit better later. He just doesn't trust him to be on the floor late in in a lot of games. Like he, He just doesn't trust him to get stops when they need to get stops. So if I was advising him, I would say to return, he's had a good freshman season, I would say. Not an elite freshman season, but he's had a good one where uh, he's knocking down threes at a high clip. He is creating offense for his teammates a little bit here and there. But he is he has a little bit of a ways to go, I think, still, in a way that is a little bit disappointing given what we saw from or given what we were expecting from him, given his rapid growth over the course of the year before. Before he got to college, yeah, it, it'll be a, a challenge just to to build that up. But Virginia Tech, as I understand it, they'll probably be competitive. And so the reason he would, uh, to me, the guy would leave is either if one team has him way higher and is willing to make promise, which won't happen with a player of his level unless something really surprising happens, or if you think your team is just going to fall off a cliff and so you won't get noticed next year. But Virginia Tech should be in that conversation anyway, so I don't think they need to. Yeah. He needs to worry about that part of it. Yeah, no, they return all. At least, like right now, we should say things can change, but they're set to return. Justin Robinson, Ahmed Hill, uh, Kerry Blackshear, I think, is a junior. Uh, Chris Clark is certainly a junior. He'll be back, and I think he's awesome. I'm excited to see what he does next year in the ACC. Um, and Nikhil Alexander Walker. I mean, th- this is a team that should be very, very, very good next season. Two guys that I feel like we could talk about together because they're both on the. I think they're both in seven ten games and play some more positions and all that. Robert Williams at Texas A&M. They're a seven seed playing Providence, and then Gafford. At Arkansas, they're a seven seed playing Butler. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who likes one of those players much more than the other one. I get that they are very, I guess the way to put it is they're very comparable in the roles that they play or the roles they project to play. But one of them plays hard consistently and the other one doesn't. One of them can set screens and roll to the basket consistently and the other one doesn't. Daniel Gafford has done an awesome job this year of doing the little things. He really wants to sit down and defend on the perimeter. He's a little bit slow-footed, but he he cares. He's very active with his hands. He really wants to disrupt you with, with anything that he can do. He's also an incredibly explosive athlete. He is uh, a lot bigger than what you would think, given the fact that he's six foot ten, two hundred and twenty-five pounds. Like he's already pretty strong for his size. He has broader shoulders. He, I think, can project play the center position more easily than what Robert Williams can. Uh, Williams, on the other hand, is. A bouncier athlete, I would say, probably has a quicker second jump than Daniel Gafford. He just doesn't play hard all the time. And, you know, part of that might have to do with the fact that Texas A&M is essentially this season's island of misfit toys uh, on the basketball court because sometimes they have DJ Hogue like playing the two. And DJ Hogue should be playing the four in college basketball. Like they play him with Tyler Davis almost exclusively. Uh, they play him with Tony Trocho Morelos from time to time. Like uh, this is not an apt place to be evaluating Robert Williams uh, on a night to night basis. He's been better lately. He's been better over the course of the last month and a half, two months. I had him down at like 21, 22 on my board at one point. He's bounced back up to like the 15, 16 range. Uh, he's a risk, though, I think for sure. Uh, if I was an NBA team, I would feel a lot more comfortable with Gafford. That's interesting, and, and and it makes sense to me. And I've been thinking about those two guys. I haven't really gotten into film with them yet. I've, I've, I'm going to try to watch at least some of their tournament games. Is the idea of how the center position shifting for a lot of teams, not every team, obviously, if you're good enough, you can play more, to more of the 20 to 25 minute a game role rather than 30 to 35? I think... It could end up really changing it for both these teams. The optimistic view for Williams is, hey, if you only have to play 20 minutes a game, maybe he'll try He'll try more consistently. But at the same point, if he can't bring consistent motor, that shorter time could actually hurt him in terms of value because coaches will just get frustrated. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Uh, he 
again, though, like how much of this is the fact that he plays on this Texas A&M team that doesn't really work together and how much of it is the fact that he doesn't want to play hard? I mean, I'm someone who thinks that you can make an impact playing hard regardless of who's on the floor next to you. But like they play better both on offense and defense when he's off the floor than when he's on the floor. They have a 105 offensive rating with him on the floor, 107 with him off the floor. They have a 101 defensive rating with him on the floor, a 95 defensive rating with him off the floor. That is a significant issue to me. The, the fact that they just don't play as active defensively whenever he's there. And this, for someone who's going to have to derive a lot of value defensively, I think he's kind of an overrated defensive player, to be honest. He, he is someone who can block a lot of shots, but is not someone who makes a consistent impact. The little reads you have to make defensively, you have to make on a night-in, night-out basis in the NBA. That, that, that stuff scares me with him. I was thinking about him in light of somebody who I was higher on, though I knew him way better than Jared Allen last year. And so I thought a good exercise for people, and this is treating Williams, because he was a, obviously a draft prospect last year who decided to come back, oops, right? and and Gafford would be, if you took what, exactly what we know right now with them and transported them back into the 2017 draft class, which had, you know, come, some of these, you know, first round centers, you could think of Zach Collins, Jared Allen, wh- where do you think those guys would fit? in in that framework no it's not so you don't get the benefit of knowing what jared allen and guys like zach collins would do this year because i'm just trying to calibrate and i think part of it is just that i was higher on jared allen than his draft stock ended up being are, are you asking about like robert williams in particular williams and gafford like would you have gafford over where jared allen was at this point last year yeah i would I like the frame better. I like the athleticism better. Jared Allen, I, you know, he's looked pretty there, good. There were over motor the course questions the last with month. him too. Yeah, with Gafford, there aren't motor questions. With Williams, there are. Yeah, which is true. a little bit scary to me. Like, I would probably have had Gafford like in the same range that Bam Adebayo was okay. last year. So something similar to that. Uh, Bam might be a little bit more quick twitch than Gafford is. Gafford played consistently very, very hard. Uh, which is something that Bam does most of the time. He plays hard. At least he's long. He's athletic. Uh, they're somewhat similar prospects to me long term. I would have, like, I would have certainly had him ahead of, like, Justin Patton, DJ Wilson, TJ Leaf. Uh, I was someone who had John Collins, like, as a lottery pick. So I would have him, like, in that range, like, something like end of the lottery, which is where I have him now. I would have Robert Williams more in the Jarrett Allen range, like more in the, and I had Jarrett Allen as like, I think number 14 or 15 on my board. So I'd have him more like at, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, mm-hmm. maybe with Robert Williams. So right around the same is what he is now. But I think that the two drafts are actually, uh, starting to shape up relatively similarly in many ways because they're starting to become, you know, last year we had a tier after nine. Right. And Donovan Mitchell kind of broke through that and made it look silly. But there was kind of nine prospects that most people felt confident with. Right. Like Fultz, Ball, Tatum, Jackson Fox, Isaac, Markinen, Nilakina, and Dennis Smith. Right. Those were the nine for most people. In this draft, you're looking at a case where it's Aiton, Doncic, Bagley, Jackson, Bamba, Porter, uh, Mikhail, Colin Sexton, Miles Bridges, Wendell Carter, and Trey Young are kind of your 11, but I don't know if I would put Trey in that 11, to be honest. I'm a little bit worried by him. I think there are reasons to be to, to be sure. And I was thinking about it with the early guys, then I was remembering about Justin Patton and some of the other guys that's going, well, something I've enjoyed with these last couple of years, and it is an important consideration for teams as they're building, is that we're seeing some of these big guys provide value. I mean, Jakob Pertl is another example of this. He's a couple of years drafted ahead of these guys. But even though they're not maybe necessarily those 35-minute-a-game centers, they can play well, play hard in 20 to 25 and provide value. I still think wings are more important, and if you can get a wing that can play for you, even looking at some of the guys this year like Josh Hart and OG, I would rather do that. But it's nice to see Bam have a nice year this year. I've been very happy with that. And Jared Allen, I think, is doing is doing good work for the Nets. So those need some reconciling. And I think there's an adjustment that needs to happen with the way NBA teams draft centers. But I have been happy 
with the value some of those guys are providing early and uh, centers generally take a little while to get better. I wonder too, if we're going to start to see teams, uh, unless you have like a hyper elite center, like a, you know, Carl Towns or a Joel Embiid, or I would say all the way down to like the Andre Drummond level, even necessarily like something in the top, like 12 centers in the league. I wonder if we're going to see teams try and go cheaper on centers and try and get, guys on rookie contracts who can contribute so that they can then allocate cap space otherwise. So they can allocate cap space to more proven wings who can defend within a team concept or more, you know, proven forwards who can provide spacing ability from the four position. It wouldn't wouldn't be out of the question for me to see that happen. There's a very clear reason for it too, which is it's hard to predict which three and D guys are going to pan out because the three tool in a lot of circumstances, it's just, you know, whether it goes in or not in college is not necessarily a predictor of whether it's going to go and because they can develop that over time. A good example of this for me is Robert Covington. Covington is still maddeningly inconsistent as a three-point shooter, but I would rather save money to figure out who the next Robert Covington is and pay them at that point rather than predict it on draft night, though I would still throw resources at wings because you have to. That's how important they are. I would kind of do both. But I think you're right on the idea of centers because outside of that, yeah, top 12, I think when Nate and I were doing center rankings, it was somewhere around 15, 16. But even then, that middle group, you're right, after yeah, after about somebody like Drummond. So who, wait, who, who was your 15, 16? Would it have been like... Clint, maybe, like was probably yeah, in like the 14 was, range, was right? right around there. I think I had him at like 13, but it's, yeah, it's tough because you get into that range and you go, okay, how much, there are certain players who are wonderful system fits as well, which makes it even harder because then, yeah. you're, because then teams have to make a different sort of rationale. It's like, yeah, okay, we can get somebody who's about as good as this guy, but maybe they're not as good for us. I mean, Capella in Houston is just an absolutely perfect system fit. And those will have to be reconciled. And certain teams also just, depending on what their draft resources are, they might not even have that capability. But I think the best articulation that I have is, I don't think we're going to see as many contracts like the one John Henson got, where right. at that point, the Bucks could not have been sure, because none of us were, that he was going to be either a starter or definitely a high-end rotation guy. And so my instinct is that in certain cases, it will be year salary. In certain circumstances, it will be dollars, just depending on what kind of leverage and what kind of cap situation that team has. But yeah, I, on guys of that ilk, I would be genuinely surprised most of the time if... So that's way further down. That's more in the 30s. If those guys got more than... 15 to 20 million in guaranteed money, however it was structured. Well, the fascinating one this summer is Yusuf Nurkic. Like, nobody knows how much he should be paid. (laughs) Right, and the Blazers, yes, Paul Allen is a hilariously rich human being. But is Nurkic good enough? And I mean, he had that game against the Miami Heat where he, when Hassan Whiteside didn't play instantly, and he looked great in that one. But if you're sitting there going, okay, not only is this guy probably going to want a lot of years and a lot of salary, but we have all these other commitments. And is he going to make us that much better? Or does having the 8.5 million, I think is what the non-taxpayer mid-level exception is, to get a wing and then maybe we can get a minimum center or Zach Collins. Maybe they could even, in that case, bring back uh, Davis, who's done a nice job. He's the, defining him as a center is a little bit weird. And I think teams are going to go in that direction, kind of piecemeal. And the other just gargantuan factor, which I think is going to affect this center class as well, not only towards the top, maybe not the very tippy top, because a guy like Aiton has so much potential they're going to do that, but more like Mitchell Robinson and Jonte Porter to a degree, is this idea that you can solve the center position, even on a really good team, with like two or three guys who ever ends up being better plays a little bit more, but you're going to end up relying on all of them at least a little bit. Yeah, like in Portland's case, like maybe the move is you do like a two plus one with Nurkic at high money. You know what I mean? Like you try and go as non- uh, long term as you can. Maybe you say like, Yusuf, we will give you two years, 38 guaranteed or something like some ridiculous number that he's probably not worth, but you just don't have him long term then like that. That seems like a decent kind of move, right? Like a bridge contract almost. Yeah, I think so. And maybe would... it has to be three so you can get him to the uh, next level of money. Like maybe it has to be like three fifty. 
55, something like that. Well, and also giving him a three-year structure would line him up with Lillard and McCollum. So yeah. I could see I could see them trying... Actually, the idea of focusing on years could be very useful for them because you do want all of that to sync up. This is actually... I, I alluded to this in a piece I wrote on the Warriors where... A lot of times teams get into some trouble when they end up booking, lining up their non-premium guys longer than their premium guys because then it's harder to pivot. And so the idea yeah. the idea in the piece was the awkwardness of giving Clay Thompson and or Draymond Green long-term money that runs longer than Curry and Durant, which could definitely happen depending on how this gets structured. And it, it what happens there is sometimes, sure, you're going to end up giving those guys Lord and CJ could end up being on the team for a lot longer. But should something change, you then probably are going to be in a lurch for a season or two because you haven't cleared enough money to really be a free agent player or anything like that. And depending on the guy, I'm not sure Nurkic is in this camp, but they can be good enough that you can't really push for the lottery. And oftentimes they're paid too much that you can't really trade them either. So you can get caught in that little cycle where you can't turn fast enough. And so lining up guys' contracts means that you can make everybody's decisions at the same time. Right. Like if you need to dump the, like say you get two more years here and you realize, all right, this, this isn't going to work. Like you can dump Nurkic pretty easily. You can move forward on CJ and, you know, make your call between CJ and Dame if you want to try and build around one of them while retooling on the fly. They're going to be in such a weird spot. Like Portland is one of the most fascinating teams, especially with them going on this crazy run right now, where not only have they won, what, I think 11 in a row now, something like that. You know, they've beaten Golden State. They've beaten Oklahoma City. Like they have real reason to think that they can go to maybe the conference finals this year if things broke right for them seeding wise. The problem with the conference finals for them is it would be almost impossible for the Warriors and Rockets to be on the same side of the bracket. I think they would be serious dogs against both. The Blazers, the Blazers probably have one of the stronger arguments of anybody of right now of the, the whole idea of a top 16 format because they're sitting there. And if you're defining success beyond, beyond winning in the second round, then it's like, well, you know, two, two of the best teams in the last decade are in the same conference at the same time. And that, that just kind of sucks for them. But at the same yeah, point, you tell me if they, they'd rather have Boston than one of Golden State or Houston. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and that's not even with, with all Boston stuff, but plenty more to talk about with Sam. But it's a great time to talk a little bit about Bet DSI. As you could tell by listening to this podcast, March Madness has officially begun. The brackets are finalized and it's time to pick that Cinderella team. Who's going to win it all? Go to BetDSI and check out all the matchups. Compete head-to-head in the BetDSI Bracket Challenge for your chance to take home guaranteed prizes and a chance to win $1 million. I am pretty public about the fact that I haven't watched as much college this year, which actually for me makes the tournament a lot more fun and a great way to stay engaged with it for those of you who are more NBA focused beyond keeping an eye on the prospects is to have something on the line in it. And BetDSI is a wonderful place to do that. They have over 20 years in business, easy to use, fast playing interface, a built reputation on fast payment and winnings, which is exceedingly important in this business, obviously. And they've been top rated on review sites and they have a lot of flexibility, which I think can be really intriguing. You can bet games as they go, live in-game wagerings now and throughout the tournament. And that's great if you feel like you have a better sense of where something is going than other people. You don't have to use that first impression, especially if you're somebody like me who might be watching a team, not for the first time, but for the first time in a little while. And you can definitely check it out Lots of great options on BetDSI, and you can get a free bracket entry and $25 NCAA tournament bet just for registering on BetDSI. Plus, you can get a 200% member bonus and more bracket contest entries on your first deposit if you use the promo code MADGM. That's M-A-D-G-M. And again, so you, you can get the certain benefits anyway, but you get that 200% member bonus and more bracket entries if you use the promo code MADGM. Don't just sit on the sidelines this March Madness. Go to BetDSI, use the promo code MADGM, and start winning today. Let's get back to the to the draft a little bit. I think another place that I'm going to be really interested, it's a second round matchup, and I, I expect, you know, whichever team makes it will have, will have some int- intrigue moving forward. But you have, in the second round, it looks like things are going to line up for Kentucky and Arizona to play. 
And Arizona has had this crazy, tumultuous year. And, I mean, Aiton has been, has been wonderful. And Kentucky, it seems to me, you've obviously watched a lot more of them than I have. It does seem like they're coming on a little bit now. How yeah. do you see that game? How do you see their prospects? Well, the first thing that they figured out is that they have a better understanding of who their best players are now, which is good. It took them a while to figure out that Nick Richards is totally unplayable for some reason. Like most people knew that after like six games, but it took Cal a while to want to adjust and sit, sit him on the bench. Yeah, you know, PJ Washington, it took him a little bit of time to figure out how to athletically adjust to what's happening around him. And then, you know, it took until January for them to just say, Shea Alexander, we're giving you the ball, create, do everything that you can for us. I think that there's a very real argument that you can make to put Shea Alexander ahead of Trey Young at this stage in the NBA draft. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily, I think it's close, but like I have them 11 and 12 on my board right now. Like I feel, I feel very confident Shea Alexander is going to be an awesome NBA player in some sort of role. Trey Young's going to be very hit or miss, right? Like we don't know if Trey Young is a legit NBA all-star and we don't know if he is a guy who might not be able to stick because he can't defend and can't really, you know, create space as well as he needs to uh, as the season goes on. Now, I am someone who tends to think of him as at worst like a backup point guard. Uh, like I think that there's not a chance that he'll get jimmered or anything like that. Like regardless, he's a very very good passer. He is very smart, but like uh, you know, whenever you're talking about creating a role, Shea Alexander fits the mold of the current NBA. He's a six foot six lead guard uh, with a seven foot wingspan who has a workable jump shot. Like that's the kind of uh, the kind of player that every team is looking for right now. And then you look at Wenyan Gabriel is knocking down shots. I'm very glad I still have a plot of land on Wenyan Gabriel Island and have never given up. You know, Jared Vanderbilt won't play in the first round here, but he's been a really good rebounder, a really athletic, physical, attacking player. So I look at these, I look at this team. I just really hope that they get the most out of everything that they have on this roster. And it seems like because Calipari has figured out who he can play, who he can't play, that's helped. Does that mean you think they have a good shot or even expected to beat Arizona? I think they certainly have a chance. And the big reason for that is that, you know, I saw Arizona live, you know, in Vegas the last week, I guess. That team's a mess uh, on the wings defensively. Like, Raleigh Elkins has this reputation of being a good defender. He is a trash fire on defense. Like, he is bad defensively. I, I don't think, you know, everyone looks at him as like this tough New York kid who's six foot five with a six nine wingspan, who weighs 225 pounds, who's physical and tough. And he, he just can't defend, especially right now coming off the foot injury from earlier this year. I mean, I watched George King from Colorado just roast him to the point where Sean Miller went, oh, we should probably put Alonzo Trier on him as a better defender than Raleigh Alkins. Whenever you're putting Alonzo Trier on someone to be a better defender than the other player, that says a lot about where you're at defensively. Trier is another player who's not very good defensively. Dylan Smith, Brandon Randolph is not really even playable right now. Dylan Smith's pretty bad. Who Any team that has athleticism on the wings, uh, like an Alexander, like a Kevin Knox, uh, even a Hamadou Diallo, if he can figure some things out for Kentucky. Those guys are going to cause a lot of problems for Arizona, I think. Now, uh, I also think DeAndre Ayton is going to cause a lot of problems for every single team in America right now because, oh my God, is that guy a stud. But, you know, at the end of the day here, I, I certainly think that Kentucky is going to have a chance as long as they get past Davidson. It's wild how it feels to me, and again, this is a year I haven't watched college basketball nearly as closely, that the teams not only on the top line, but even on the two and three and four line, there yeah. just isn't the stability to say, oh, well, they're at least going to make the Sweet 16. I, I don't know yeah. if that's just the structure of college basketball right now, but it certainly opens the door for a, a wild tournament, which is a, a great thing for enjoyment of the tournament, but can be a downside in terms of looking at draft prospects unless those lower seeds have guys that you need to see. Well, th this is something I've been saying all year. This is such a flat talent curve year. Uh, the, the talent curve across college basketball is flatter than I think it's been since I've been watching college basketball. 
part of this you can look at uh, from the perspective of Duke and Kentucky dominating the recruiting rankings. So they get so many of the high-level kids, and then the rest of the talent filters out to a lot of different spots so they can get early playing time. Uh, I think a lot of it does just generally have to do that with the fact that kids want early playing time, so they do filter to a lot of different spots. I think that the exodus of – uh, the last two years with the new NBA draft rules have also significantly uh, diminished the overall talent level in college basketball this season. There's a reason that everyone is talking about the freshmen as the best players in college basketball, when, whereas like in most years, it's uh, juniors and seniors who dominate the play in many ways once we get down to NCAA tournament time. Right, and that's so, a big, just to clarify, that's a big difference between best prospects and best players. There's always been this distinction where you had really right. good players who who were lower in the draft process because they were, you know, and, and then there were also guys that came on. Like you could think about Buddy Heald as a good example of this, where you just have more time for those guys to develop and really show out, and then they get, you know, like those sorts of things. Right, no, I mean, there's always a huge difference between best player and best prospect. I mean, I get asked all the time, like, why is X player not a legit draft? Like, why is Trayvon Blewett at Xavier, who's probably going to be an All-American, why is he not a legit prospect? I mean, he's been there four years. He's older. He's not quite as athletic. Uh, you know, it's going to be really, really tough, I think, for him to make the transition to the NBA. He's a shot maker and he'll get a chance, but it's going to be harder for him. There are a lot of guys like that, I think. that It's just going to be really, really difficult for lesser athletic players who are getting by on physical strength and uh, four years of skill development to make that leap. On a completely separate note, but I just saw his name on a draft board, Bates Diop, you're a fan of him, right? Because I haven't seen him at all yet. I am indeed a fan of Keita Bates Diop. Uh, He is not only just because I went to Ohio State, I do enjoy his game. And I mean, because one of the elements of this class that's just so interesting is that there aren't, you know, that there aren't really those true high ceiling, you know, there aren't those wings, uh, depending on how people see Michael Porter and Luka Doncic. Those those are both, they're they're kind of wing adjacent. So you can, if I, I see Doncic yeah. as a two, so I guess that that would count. And Porter, Porter, my instinct is that he, there are a few He's, guys like this. I actually said this about Jason Tatum, and I'm not really sure yet whether I was right, where they'd be better at the four than the three, but there are so few threes that they'll end up being threes anyway. I think Porter's probably even more of a four than what Tatum was, but I think generally he'll probably play some three in the NBA just because, you know, like he's 6'10", like he's a big dude. I mean, Bates Diop, I think, fits more as a four as well. He'll play some three, but I I think he's more of a four athletically. He's also got really good shot blocking instincts from the weak side because he has that like 7'1", 7'2", wingspan. that will help him play the four. Uh, he's a smart defender, but also has some slow feet syndrome going on where he can get blown by occasionally. The, the thing with him is, though, he's just such a good shot maker from all three levels. He, he's so methodical and smooth. He's almost like watching like a slightly bigger, longer DeMar DeRozan play college basketball just because he can get to his fl- get to his spot on the floor at literally any time. And he has this ridiculously high release point that is so difficult to contest that he's going to make shots basically wherever he goes. Yeah, it's interesting to see how, how a guy like that is going to fare. But players who can create a shot, really, whether it's for themselves or for other people, if they can do it against NBA caliber competition, are always valuable because it might not always be as a starter, though, I mean, if you can do it at a high enough level, you will always be a starter. But second units, I mean, we've seen this around the league in the last couple of years. Charlotte is a great example of that this year before they got everybody back. If you do not have one of those players, just get absolutely sunk. Yeah, no, you have to be able to create shots on your second unit. There is no question about that. I mean, this Charlotte team is not nearly as bad as what their record is. Like, I think they're 10 games under 500 right now or something. Like, they, they should not be this bad based off of what their talent level is, but because they were playing Michael Carter-Williams as their primary initiator for so many minutes of the year, it became really tough for them. And that kind of ties in with the way that the point guard position is moving, where 
it's kind of like centers, and it's it's intriguing that there there are parallels to that. If where the best guys are absolutely you know worth their weight in gold, huge players, and to a point now that was not true ten years ago, MVP candidates if they if they can really reach the highest heights. But if you are below a certain threshold, there are just so many guys that are capable that giving them a lot of years, giving them a lot of money is very dangerous. And it's crazy that in this year's free agency class, that threshold is probably just one dude. And that dude is Chris Paul. Everybody else under that has a lot of volatility. And that, I think that same thing applies in the draft process, that if you can prove it, if you could get to, to level and also getting guys like the center position, maybe you draft them a little higher because if you can get them on a rookie scale deal, that's four years plus team control that's really valuable but it's yeah. amazing how that position is changing not only in terms of the roles that that we've talked about before and it's a huge story in the league but how that trickles down into draft prospects and everything like that you, you mean to tell me you're not buying into the alfred payton resurgence not yet no i mean Peyton, yeah, I'd be caught. I, the, the Fascinating player right now. Oh, man. I mean, and, and especially when he had a couple of those like performances. And he looked, I saw him in person in that stretch when Devin Booker was out. And he looked more confident in his jump shot than I've ever seen. But I still don't trust it, which is yeah, really, I, I guess, the also, big problem. Like you look at what he's done in Phoenix, like he's still shooting 20% from three in yeah. Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's shooting with confidence is definitely a good thing. But at a certain point, you need to see results as well. It's both of those things that matter. And being reluctant to shoot is a problem. Not having it go in is a problem. And so you kind of have to hit both of those thresholds. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that he's going to get an offer somewhere. But also, a lot of these guys timing out when there just isn't much money around the league. I mean, if it were me, and none of the 30 teams are run by me, so this is not necessarily a factor, if all I have is like one $8 million slot, as long as there's a wing that I think is any good, I'm going in that direction just praying that I can churn through guys near the minimum at the other spots because you can't find wings. Like, unless you're the Miami Heat, teams cannot find wings through really through the G League that are that can be you know like a regular rotation player with any frequency a couple teams have done it a few times like San Antonio but to really get to that level it takes some serious work okay so like would you rather have Kyle Anderson or Alfred Payton oh it's like Alfred Payton's ostensibly the better player but like Kyle Anderson does provide positional value yeah I think oh, that's gross, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it doesn't make me happy because I'm also thinking about because I'm guessing I would put money down that I would rather have Kyle Anderson on his contract. I think he's going to get less than Peyton is, but that's not fair. That's Probably a, true. That's a cheap hedge. Ah, uh, I think I would rather have Peyton on this logic that on a lot of teams, it's the Michael Carter Williams problem. If you don't or the Nets before they got well Russell hasn't been great other than drilling seven threes in the first quarter against the Raptors if you don't have that guy who can create whether it's on the first year or the second and I, I think it felt for Peyton right now is primarily like a backup that has some upside if you don't have that guy your team isn't going to do very well whereas with Kyle Anderson it's harder for me to see him moving the needle now if I already had two point guards that I trusted, then I would go Kyle Anderson, not hesitate, move on straight till morning, even if I think Alfred Payton's better than my backup. But I have to assume with the distribution of talent that I don't have two guys that I like at this point. So I'm sorry because this news just broke, it looks like. On what scale, like when do we start getting worried about the Warriors, like with injuries? Because now Clay has a fractured right thumb, Steph has the ankles. Like well, when, do, when do we get worried a little bit here? Well, I think... What you, what you look at with it is what injuries are going to be present in early April is an important factor, but also late April, I think, is more important for them because they should yeah. be able, even if they're a little bit limited, they should be able to make it out of the first round without too much of a problem unless they get the wrong team. And then that's where it could really swing. Like if they could, if let's say San Antonio gets Kawhi back or Minnesota gets Jimmy Butler back, then that becomes right. a fundamentally different thing. But if it extends, if any of these do, and and obviously it just happened, so I haven't heard I haven't heard a timeline. There's so Sam Amick is saying that he could return around March 22nd. So if, if that's the case, if it's that sort of an injury, but then lingers. I, I'm thinking more about when they get to 100. percent So yeah, I mean, but what what this is a reminder of, and people should remember this with the Warriors because it happened to them most prominently recently, 
is that no team in the NBA can survive many injuries to their best guys against the best teams. I mean, right. the Warriors in 2015-16 were the best regular season team ever. And that Cleveland team fought their hearts out. And absolutely, they were a, a worthy champion. They played well enough to it. But if Steph Curry doesn't sprain his MCL, and let's say no other corresponding size injuries happen, the Warriors win that championship. Kawhi Leonard, you know, last year, I don't think that swung who would have won the Western Conference Finals, but I certainly think it made it a very different series. So I don't think there are really ever any teams that are more than one star injury away from doing that. And then you can have a discussion about where where Clay Thompson fits on that star key player kind of paradigm. But these teams are all so good, and especially in the playoffs where they can adjust and be well coached, ideally if they have a good coach, that it doesn't take lo- it doesn't take much for it to fall off. And a good example of this, actually, I was just thinking about this offhand. We don't talk enough about Nene's absence in the Rockets Spurs series as being a big factor there because it yeah. took away a backstop for them at the center position. And yes, Houston could have and and to a degree should have played fewer minutes with traditional centers. But Nene was just a great stabilizing force for them. He had a wonderful first round against the Thunder. And I think he, he you could make an argument that if he had been there, that that series would have swung because of the Kawhi injury. Like maybe they win game six and then it, from there it goes on. And so it, it really matters. You have to be healthy. And I, I think back to this point, Mark Cuban said this in the owner's open court. If people who haven't watched it, you definitely should. He talked about this idea. Now it's kind of a way that I frame stuff of how many injuries away are you? And yeah. the functional truth is very few teams that are good enough to make the playoffs and be a legit playoff team. So not those, you know, like the, I think that was the Wizards a couple, like 10 years ago that they had all their guys get hurt, but they still made the playoffs or the Grizzlies a couple years ago, like excluding those teams. You know, most, most squads are at one to two injuries away from beating almost anybody, depending on who gets hurt. Yeah. And you know, another part of it is too, that we so often underrate the idea of, for instance, what Toronto did last summer, positioning themselves to be the team that can take advantage of just weird I don't even, I forget if I can curse on this or not, but like weird happening. You know what I mean? Like Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson potentially being hurt. And then the Cavs not gelling after having to trade Kyrie Irving in what I guess it was in like late July, early August, if I remember correctly, when that deal happened. So like the Raptors did a great job of positioning themselves from a team building perspective to be able to take advantage of the problems of other teams. Sometimes if you have a high level team, just staying stagnant helps. Staying stagnant is good. Being at that level, being where you can count on winning 50 games a year, 55 games a year is a really good thing. It is going to be wild to see what the Warriors look like in this span. I mean, so no Steph Curry, no Klay Thompson for an entire week. Draymond Green is already out for their Wednesday game against the Lakers. So it's the Kevin Durant show. And, you know, they'll have eventually support players. They have a lot of support players that are actually hurt right now, too. But... Yeah, I mean, we're, this is going to be very different. It won't affect their seeding because the Warriors are going to be the two seed either way. But it's a reminder. I mean, it's it's not – no team is ever that far away. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He is – I mean, like, they, they could legitimately – the Warriors could legit be in trouble and the Raptors could legit have a good shot. Plenty more to talk about with Sam, but I want to take a quick moment to tell you about our friends at TrueCar. Even if you are a big-time basketball fan, there might be a few facts about the game that you don't know. Like, did you know that the first hoops were actually peach baskets, or that a warm basketball is bouncier than a cold one, or that players can run as much as four miles in a game? Well, here's another fact you might not know that's really helpful if you need to buy a car. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you can enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before they're buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Let's get back into the into the draft a little bit. 
something I wanted to discuss before there's some top guys I want to do is just players that you think have a lot of room to to raise their stock, and that could, sure. that could even be fortifying. But just like who who probably and that might be because their team is going to make it a long way or something like that. Who do you think can really use the next two to three weeks to change the way NBA evaluators are thinking about them? So like one guy that you've seen start to pop up really high on internet draft boards, but isn't quite as high yet for NBA teams is Zaire Smith out of Texas Tech. Most NBA teams think of him as like an outside the lottery, like, you know, somewhere between 15 and 35 pick right now, right? The problem, the reason that they're not quite as high on him as the internet brethren are that he just hasn't been seen as much as some of the other elite prospects. Like Lonnie Walker has been seen so many times by NBA executives just because he has been around the block. He was an elite level prospect from the time he was 16 years old. Zaire Smith was like the 200th ranked recruit in the 2018 class or 2017 class. So he just hasn't been seen as much. And being able to show in front of a lot of eyeballs that you are this good can help raise your stock and help fortify your stock to where some people think it is already. I mean, it's, it's like not there, but you know, it, some people think he has that ceiling and I, I totally get why some people think he has that ceiling. Um, another guy that I look at is probably, uh, it would have been DeAndre Hunter at Virginia. He could have really helped himself. Jonte Porter, I think could really help himself if Missouri can make a run, if they can beat Xavier in the second round as well. Um, Killian Tilly at Gonzaga is an interesting one. He's hit like something like 20 of his last 22 three pointers. He is a six foot 10 kid who is really, really high basketball IQ, great defensive instincts, really uh, has good principles in terms of verticality, wants to defend, is a great passer as well, kind of the perfect role player for the NBA. He could really help himself, I think, by having a good week. I mean, beyond that, Gary Trent, I think, is a name too. I, I would say that Gary Trent uh, could really help himself if Duke can make a run. He's an elite level shooter. He is uh, not a super athlete, not great at getting separation from his man, but there's always space for shooters, I think, in the NBA, and that's a guy who could really help himself going forward. The last kind of big area that I wanted to discuss with you, just because I find it so interesting that the way that this turned out is that all of the real like kind of top end center or center related prospects this year are in the tournament, which is great. I mean, sometimes that hasn't always been true, but also a lot of them are on teams that can go far. So we got, you know, Wendell Carter, Eaton, we've discussed a little bit, Mo Bamba, Jaron Jackson on Michigan State. Marvin Bagley. Bagley, yeah, depending on how we're going to see that. So how much fluidity – I think Aiden there, – there doesn't seem to be much that Aiden can do to, to move off of the top spot of that group of five dudes. But is there a lot of fluidity among everyone else, and who do you expect to – if there is fluidity, to kind of rise through that by the through the course of the next couple of weeks? I would say that the guy I'm looking at from that perspective most is probably Marvin Bagley. For some reason, people have like started to question Bagley in a very strange way, like almost like an unreasonable way. He does have defensive concerns, no question there, uh, just given the fact that right now he's not a very good defender. But he's also probably the best athlete in this entire draft class. So that that's the kind of stuff that translates really, really well, as we've seen in the past with guys who can produce like that. Like if if a team drafting at number five gets like way better John Collins, they're pretty happy, right? Or even at number three? Probably. Yeah. I mean, unless you think there are multiple like kind of are multiple meaning three or more like Hall of Fame caliber talents in this class. I don't I don't think they're you know, that's probably too lofty. I, I would I would say from that. So yeah, sure. I mean, John Collins is having a nice year and and Bagley, certainly his physical potential could push him to another level. That's the guy I look at as like the player who can really, really help himself and solidify his stock. I think that he legitimately can lead Duke to a national championship. He is that good. If Jaron Jack, like if Michigan State wins the national championship, I don't know that Jaron Jackson will be seen as the guy who led Michigan State to the national title. You know what I mean? Like Miles Bridges will have been there. 
some people really like Cassius Winston and that story. Um, Nick Ward exists. He'll be more seen as like a piece of a puzzle. Bagley, I think, would be seen as the guy who got them there. Another guy that you mentioned, Muhammad Bamba. Bamba, I don't think Texas can really do much damage, but I do think that Bamba can help himself by leading Texas on a run defensively. You brought up, uh, who else did you bring up? You brought up, uh, one other player. Uh, Michael Porter, maybe? Is that, is that Wendell, Carter. Mike, Wendell Carter? Yeah, Wendell Carter is another one. Like Wendell Carter, I don't think he would be the guy who would lead his team to a national title. He's seen more as like the second guy behind Marvin Bagley from a college basketball perspective, but he can help himself to be sure. All these guys can help themselves. I don't really think any of them are going to tangibly hurt themselves in the uh, NCAA tournament, really. They're all really good players. But Bagley is the guy, I think, that if Duke went on a run and he led Duke to a national championship, I think we could be looking at him as like he is very clearly the number two, number three player in this class. I was going to make a, a a response about how it would be awkward with Grayson Allen, NCAA champion, but then I remembered he already is an NCAA champion because he was a freshman on that fourteen fifteen Duke team. So we'll just have to we'll have to process that in our own ways. Grayson but, Allen, oh man, oh man, I'm very excited for the Grayson Allen spectacle. And Duke's bracket is just wild because I mean, so if they beat Iona, then they play the Rhode Island Oklahoma winner, which. I don't know Rhode Island, Rhode Island nearly as well as you do, but I feel like that Oklahoma-Duke game would be way more hype than it would deserve. Oh, and, yeah, I think Duke would beat them by, like, 20. Yeah, and then and then presumably probably Michigan State at that point, which would be a rematch of the Champions Classic, which was one of the few college basketball games I watched intently this year. Yeah, and, you know, that was a game that Duke won without Marvin Bagley. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm not, like... I, I, I don't understand the desire to get down on Marvin Bagley. He is a guy who should be a senior in high school right now, averaging like 20 and 12 in college basketball. He is absurdly good. It is strange how the reclassification system works in that way, where once a guy's in, you're like, oh, they're a freshman. And even though the freshman class can be varying ages, I mean, Josh Jackson was a great example of this as well. Like, it, it is to a degree, more about age there than experience in college basketball, as long as they're, you know, for the outliers, for everybody else, you know, it's not as big a deal. But for those kind of guys, I mean, because, yeah, he's really young. Isn't Jonte Porter really young, too? Jonte Porter, I think, is like a November 1999 birthday. Good lord. Um, yeah, uh, Jaron Jackson, I think, is a September 1999 birthday. Jackson, I think, is like six months younger than Bagley, even. Um, like, Bagley's not, like, super young. Like, he's... He's a young player for his class, but he's not like wildly young. He, yeah. He's just young and he has one less year of experience because he skipped the year of high school. Uh, yeah, like the fact that this dude is averaging 21 and 12 points at night. He's shooting 37% from three at six foot 11. Uh, he can pass the ball. It's bananas to me that like we're, we're sitting here being concerned about Marvin Bagley being if he's going to be like a good player in the NBA. He is incredibly good at basketball. We'll we'll talk a little bit more openly afterwards, but we can't even though this is NBA focused, I can't let you leave without saying who your your picks for the final four and your champion are. Yeah, no, no problem. So I had Virginia winning the championship before DeAndre Hunter got hurt. Mm -hmm. I would probably change that now. I'm going to give you a final four of – let's go with – man, it gets hard. Like that, even that south region gets hard for me. I think I'm going to go Arizona. I am going to go with Gonzaga. So I'm going two four seeds because I'm an idiot. I'm going to go Villanova and I'm going to go Duke. And then I'm going to say – I have Villanova beating Duke in my Fieldhouse bracket, but I'm going to go ahead and say Duke beats Villanova, Gonzaga beats Arizona, and then Duke beats Gonzaga in the title game. I will give you uh, – those are the games I will give you. That would be wild. And, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to see where this all shakes out. And the randomness of one-game eliminations is certainly something that I have problems with in, in other areas. But now, especially that I've, I guess, for selfish reasons, I've moved away from college basketball as being as important in my life, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as it used to because it's not it's not the same thing. It's just like you enjoy it for what it is, and then we can and then we can do other things. But I'm, I'm excited to see a lot of these guys in different circumstances 
is the way the tournament's going to work out. And so I think the way to end this is just what that we haven't talked about are you looking forward to seeing in the next three weeks? I am most looking forward to probably just watching DeAndre Ayton play basketball. Getting to see him, you know, I'd seen him in person, you know, seven or eight times before, probably more than that now I think about it, probably closer to ten times before uh, I saw him this weekend in Vegas. But, oh, my God, like, he's so much freakier than what he was even in high school last year. Like, he is – you cannot understand – like seeing him until you see him in person and see just how incredibly large he is and how he moves on a basketball floor and can shoot like he can do everything he is like i i got like i got crap i guess because i quoted lorenzo romar who you know by the way has had uh, i think 11 first round picks in the nba draft at this stage uh given his time in washington he had the number one overall pick last year recruited michael porter for years like lorenzo romar knows what's going on romar said that he's never seen anyone like deandre ayton and by that he just means like there's never been a prospect who brings this exact skill set to the table. Like he's not saying like DeAndre Ayton is the best prospect ever. He just meant that there's never been a prospect who is seven foot one with a seven foot six wingspan who uh, brings this kind of explosiveness, this kind of also skilled ability and passing ability and, you know, all of the little things that DeAndre Ayton brings to the table. And I had uh, Lance Pearson, who was the former, like, uh, what was he? He was like, uh, I think he was like the liaison between like the analytics department and the coaching staff for the 76ers for a while. He said, man, like, you know, Joel Embiid is, you, you know, just like, like he's better than DeAndre Ayton across the board. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's it's fair. I definitely think Embiid's a better prospect, but you know, Ayton is more athletic than Joel Embiid is, I think. And, and I don't say that lightly. Like I look at the explosiveness that DeAndre Ayton brings to the table. I think he's more explosive than what even Joel Embiid is. And whenever you're talking about that kind of player at that size, Man, you, you just got to enjoy it for what it's worth. You, you got to sit back and really uh, just have a blast every time you get to watch that guy play college basketball. I will never forget how striking he was physically the first time I saw him in person because it was at a high school. It wasn't a tournament because it wasn't winners play winners. It was just a high school basketball event, whatever that was. And I had been watching other high-end teams. You know, there were a bunch of talented players in that, including Thon Maker, incidentally. Thon was on that uh, Canadian team, whatever team that was. And when Aiton came out, I'm just like, oh my god. Like, this is... He he didn't look like a high school player. And he was, I think at that point, was he a junior? I'm trying trying to remember. Yeah, he he was. was. It was not his senior year. It was not his senior year. And so, just the striking nature of that. But then at the same point, you know, the physical tools were there. But we always wondered, you and I have... There's a lot of documented people want to go back through our conversations about wondering about his motor and all this other stuff. And it's so exciting that he has put it together so much more because that's what he was going to have to do as an NBA player. And he's not a sure thing to me at this point, but he is far closer to that than I ever would have expected after that and the hoop summit and everything else. And I'm so thrilled for it. Yeah, no, uh, the fact that he has... In this era of basketball, it's, it's not rare that we see guys like hit every development, you know, cycle that we hope they hit, but it is, we see a lot of kids fail in that regard as well. So seeing someone like DeAndre Ayton who has hit every single mark and checked every single box as he has continued to develop in college basketball is so fun. It's just so fun to watch. Well, that's a great thing to end on. Thank you so much as always for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thanks again to Sam for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, as well as the Fieldhouse podcast with Seth Davis. And you can follow him on Twitter. Great follow, especially this time of year, but really whenever, at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him about this. I would assume we will do another conversation once the tournament is over. And then, you know, maybe something around the lottery or something. We'll, we'll figure something out there, combine something. But I love talking with Sam. And it's fun when we get into NBA topics too, because he knows the league very well too. And so we got into some of that as well. Lots going on around the league. I mean, dealing with injuries to the number two seeds in both conferences, the playoff 
races in both conferences are awesome. The tank race is pretty spectacular. That's actually something I talk about a lot with my sports writing friends off the air. Nate and I have gotten into it a little bit on Dunked On as well. So... I don't know if I want to use this space for it. I will figure that out in the next couple of weeks. Plenty of other stuff I want to talk about, and I have hopefully going to have some great guests lined up to talk about everything that remains. And then once the playoffs start, we get into a full-on sprint and really excited for that. And then going into the draft and then for agency, and it doesn't stop until mid-July and I'm so thankful for that because it's just just an absolute blast. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can also check out the, I call it the glorious nonsense, the mascot bracket podcast I do with my sister. She is a biologist who actively hates sports and loves animals. So we do the entire NCAA tournament bracket as if the mascots got in a fight. It is about a half an hour and it's one of the craziest things that I do, but I really do enjoy it as an exercise and just just having fun. And that is on the Real GM feed. It is not a numbered episode because it is not an episode in that sense, but you can definitely check that out. If you want to give any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is by far the best way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise I'll respond. I get too much now. I have too many other things on my plate to promise that I will respond, but I do read it. I, I really do read everything. And then I usually leave it in my inbox for long enough if I don't have time to respond until I get guilty. And then I often try to, but you see, either way, it is important for me. I'm trying to make the best show possible. As I have mentioned before, one of the other keys to support the show is to check out our sponsors, BetDSI. If you use that promo code MADGM, that gives you a 200% member bonus on your first deposit, which is awesome. And more contest entries for the bracket. And they're also doing other benefits right now. Great way. If you're looking to make March Madness more interesting, check that out. Also, of course, our friends at TrueCar, where you can buy new and used cars. It's pretty cool. And as you heard in the pre-roll, our new friends, the podcast, Legends of the Game, exciting to, to have something. And having a photographer do shows is something that I find fascinating. It's a field that I know very, very little bit about, but the connection between them and sports is interesting. I was actually really into sports photography books when I was younger, so that's something I'm going to be interested in. If you want to support the show in other ways, you absolutely can, and I would appreciate it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It is great if it is iTunes because... It's great. Even if you if you want to be super nice, even if iTunes isn't your podcast, you can leave a positive rating and review there because it is so important in our business on iTunes and that can help push you up in the rankings and all that kind of stuff. Also, just word of mouth is important. Telling people, hey, this is a cool podcast. I try to mention it on Dunkin' every once in a while, but there are still people who go, wait, you do your own show. And man, this is very different in feel. It's more of an interview style thing. And if you think people would dig it, let them know. And of course, subscribing, downloading every episode, those things are stalwarts of these sorts of discussions for a reason because they are incredibly important. So we'll be back next week. Don't know exactly where I'm going to go, but I have a couple pretty good ideas and there will be lots to talk about. That is an absolute guarantee. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. It has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that could even store your Surface Pen. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. You want to go. Yes. Go travel. Go explore. Go find a new city. Go reconnect with friends. Go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free, and you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.